Thank you, Ben. Good afternoon, all of you. And good evening. Um, I do want to firstly acknowledge on uh, this Father's Day, just having experienced it myself a couple of years back, uh, just how difficult Father's Day can be for some people. Um, Father's Day can be tough, um, whether it's miscarriage, infertility, a uh, strained relationship with a son, with a father. Um, I prayed for you guys a lot this morning, and um, I do pray um, for God's peace and presence in your life right now. I do want to wish the rest of you fathers in here, as Luke did, a happy Father's Day. Um, I do, uh, who got their free Black Rock drink today? All right, sweet. Well, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one. So as Luke said, my name is Calvin Arend. Um, I help out in the young adult ministry. It really takes an army. I'm one of many, um, but it's a joy to be with them. They're an absolute hoot, and it's fun to do life with them every Sunday night. Um, my wife, Nicole, is here, and my little baby, Camilo, is a year and a half. He's in the Walker's room, um, but we moved out here about two and a half years ago, and we've been members of Gateway ever since then, and man, we just love it here. You guys are our family, as we don't have any family here, and we just love doing life alongside you guys. So um, we're going to go ahead and dig into the text real quick. I do just want to acknowledge, man, Kids Camp, this stuff is amazing. Um, coming up this week, I just want to thank the kids team, the production team, all the people who stayed here until 8, 10 at night this week, and we'll be staying late tonight, all the volunteers coming in this next week to pour into the kids. Um, it is amazing to see how much we love our kids here at the church, and it is a true gift. I do want to start off by thinking about a time when somebody told you, do what I say, not what I do. This might have been a spouse. This might have been a friend. This might have been uh, maybe a neighbor or a coworker. But a time when somebody told you, do what I say, not what I do, and you were pierced by that because there's that level of hypocrisy. Should I really listen to them? Can I really trust them? And actually, I experienced this myself just two weeks ago. It was, uh, it was here for men's dinner and a very good friend and mentor of mine, Andy, here actually, um, he looked at me, right? And he's asking me, he goes, hey, how are you doing, Calvin? I go, yeah, I'm doing well. And he goes, oh, how's your wife, Nicole, doing? And I go, yeah, I'm, she's doing well. And he goes, how's your little baby, Camilo? He's a year and a half. And I go, you know, he's walking a lot, he's talking a lot, he's doing what I do. And he looks at me and he goes, Calvin, you better watch what you say and you better watch what you do because he's going to keep copying you. He's going to imitate you and he's going to do what you do and say what you say. And there was kind of that like, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. And he caught me off guard. And I think when the writer John comes to us today and he says stuff like, hey, I want you to know that you know God and I want you to keep his commandments, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, are you just saying? Are you just doing what he says? Are you, are you actually doing what Jesus did? Are you actually entering into that? And there's that piercing reality that a lot of us act like hypocrites sometimes. And I was pierced by that to say, man, I'm not always the best example. I don't always do what I do and I'm not always a man of my word. So we're gonna dig in tonight and a little bit of a review. Where have we been in First John, right? God is light and him is no darkness at all. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just and he forgives us by Jesus who's our advocate and our propitiation. Right? We talked about this idea that 
John is going to keep diving into that consistent obedience and confession of sin leads to us being connected with God and cleansed of all our unrighteousness. That we'll be connected with God when we confess our sins and when we're consistently obedient following God. And just last week in verses one and two of chapter two here, we talked about sin being big, but Jesus being bigger. And really this text is gonna dive deeper into that as we see how big sin is and that Jesus is bigger. Um, as we're gonna see on the screen here in 1 John 5, 13, right? What's the purpose? Why is John writing? Well, he tells us, right? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John cares about us knowing that we have eternal life. He doesn't want us to ask questions. He wants us to look at this text and say, hey, am I doing these things? Am I drawing close into relationship with God? And he wants us to know that we have eternal life. So I would ask you, do you have assurance? Do you know that you have eternal life? This is the language John's using because he cares that this is how we believe in God, that we know him. A little bit of background, right? In John's day, back in the late first century, just as in our own, there were people who would confess Jesus as savior, but they wouldn't submit to him as Lord. That was the reality in the first century, and that's our reality today. And John's, what he's telling us is, look, if Jesus is not your Lord, if you're not submitting to him as king, he's not your savior. He's saying, if you don't have a concern to follow Jesus, we're lying when we say that we don't know him. So in our text, right, John's diving deeper into the sin is big, but Jesus is bigger because he wants us to know that we know Jesus. So our big idea tonight, drawn off of, you know, this interaction I had with Andy, following God is doing what Jesus says and doing what Jesus does. He's not a hypocrite. He's not like us in our weakness. It's doing what he says and what he does, and we get to enter into that with him. I'm gonna pray real quick for us as we dive in. God, I do just pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you would help us to see you clearer, to know you better, and to see us found in you, God. We wanna know you better, and we wanna be people who not just do what you say, but do what you do. We want to follow you and live life with you, and we're grateful for that opportunity to be a part of your kingdom. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in verse three here, I'm going to read it one more time for us. John says, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I want you to know that you know. He cares about us knowing and what does he mean by knowing? What does he mean by this knowledge? He wants us to know God, and the definition that I put on this is he wants us to know God, and knowing God is experiencing him personally, experiencing him in relationship, and as a result, being transformed. It's not just knowing him as an end in itself, but it's knowing him, entering into relationship with him, and as a result, being transformed. The NLT expands on this idea of knowing that we know him by saying, I want you to be sure that you know him. We can be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. Um, when I was in high school, I grew up in San Diego. 
I was a massive Philip Rivers fan. I don't know how many of you know Philip Rivers, but 63,000 yards, 421 touchdowns. I mean, he was just my childhood idol. I looked up to him a ton, and one, one day, I walk into my high school, and he walks in the door to the assembly hall, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is my day. And so he's speaking, right? And I, to be honest, I wasn't really paying much attention to what he was saying, because what I was thinking about was, which door is he leaving through? And so I ran over to that door on his way out, and I stood there waiting. And once he finished his speech, he starts walking towards that door, and what do I do? I don't know, I'm a little 15-year-old boy, and I just slap his right bicep, the one that threw all those touchdowns. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is my childhood idol. And so I go home, right, and it's dinner time, and I'm telling my dad, and I'm telling my siblings and my mom, and I'm going... Philip Rivers, my childhood idol. I touched his bicep, the one that's thrown all those touchdowns, and I'm saying, I know him, right? And they're kind of looking at me like, you don't know him, right? And this is the idea that we get here. He's like, I want you to be sure that you know him, and you don't know him with just one experience touching the bicep. I would have had to spend time with Philip Rivers in practice. I would have had to spend time with Philip Rivers at the dinner table to really get to know him. It's not just a bicep slap. It's so much more than that, right? Actually, uh, our good buddies on King and Culture, they define this idea of knowing God in this way. They say knowing God is way more like playing the piano than doing calculus. It is time spent. It's personal investment, experience, rightly tuned affections, loyalty, proximity, and covenant friendship. This is what it means to know God. It's more like playing the piano and having played the piano for 12 years, I, I know that on the first time, my parents were laughing at me. They were like, you don't know how to play the piano. It's not like calculus where you figure out the problem. He's saying it's time spent. It's personal investment. It's that experience, your affections, loyalty, proximity, and covenant friendship. I can't help but think of the song that we sing here a lot, Goodness of God, right? It says, I've known you as a father, and I've known you as a friend. And that's what John's getting at here when he's speaking of knowing God like a perfect father who's there for you and shows up like a friend who never betrays you, who shows up and hears you and speaks with you. So he says, I want you to know that you know him and you'll know if you know him if we keep his commandments. Think of the English language we often attribute with this idea of keep, the idea of moral perfection. That's not what John is trying to get at here. What this word actually in Greek means is it's talking about guarding. It's talking about preserving. It's talking about watching over because you care about something deeply. That's what John is speaking of when he speaks of keeping the commandments. Actually, just a month ago on Mother's Day, um, our little year-and-a-half-year-old Camilo, right? All you guys know about the newborn curls, right? All you parents hopefully know about the curls, right? So we're giving him his first haircut. And what do we do, right? We're giving him a haircut and the curls in the back. I'm going to kind of sweep the floor, and my wife looks at me and goes, No, we have to save a curl. A lot of you parents know that. You got your baby book, right, with a tooth saved or a curl saved or a piece of hair or something significant, right? It means something. 
It's because you care, because you want to preserve something special, right? This is what John is trying to get at when he's saying keeping the commandments. He's not speaking of moral perfection, but what he's speaking of is he's speaking of you care about this deeply, so you're going to guard it and hold fast to it and preserve it. That is what John is trying to say here. So when he says, I want you to guard and preserve and watch over these commandments, what commandments is he speaking of? Is he speaking of the Ten Commandments? I think what this word and what it means throughout the rest of 1 John, John is speaking to this idea of the whole entire word, the totality of Scripture. He's also speaking to the commandment of love, right? To love God and to love one another. That's what John is speaking to here in this text when he speaks of the commandments. And actually, if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, what... God is saying in his command to Israel, it's nothing new, right? And this is what we see here again in this text. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He says, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This is the same God from Deuteronomy 10, who shows up in our text today, who says, I want you to guard the commandments. I want you to keep them. I want you to walk with me. I want you to fear me. I want you to love me and serve me and walk in relationship with me with all your heart and with all your soul. And I want you to love one another. So he's talking about the whole word and he's also talking about that commandment of love that we saw, right? As Jesus says, he says, The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That sounded awfully close to Deuteronomy 10 there, right? And then you see, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't just a profession. This is that idea that we say around here, all of life being all for Jesus. That's what is at the crux of this commandment. This commandment isn't just a profession, but a submission to Jesus as king and as Lord. I think in connection with these two ideas of knowledge and of um, knowing Jesus and to keep his commandments, John Calvin helps connect these when he says the knowledge of God leads us to fear him and to love him. The doctrine of the gospel is a lively mirror in which we contemplate the image of God and are transformed into the same. This is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And what does he say there? He says that we all, with unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying the result of your knowledge, the result of your knowledge that you have results in loving God and fearing him and walking with him. And all this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And this is for your good. That's what God said in Deuteronomy 10. And that's what he's saying to us today, Redemption Gateway. He's saying, this is for your good. In verse 4, we have this sobering verse to where John says, Whoever says that I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's a sobering phrase to where John's saying, he's not saying, oh, you're professing faith in Jesus. There's this emphatic nature. 
This attitude of pride, this attitude of, oh, stay back from me, don't challenge me, don't hold me accountable. It's not entering into community. It's this profession that's contradicted by your actions. So John says, whoever says that I know him is a liar. If you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. I actually worked at Chick-fil-A for five years, um, for a while in California and actually for about a year here. And actually on the very first day that you work at Chick-fil-A, they teach you about four core values. They tell you, they said you need to create eye contact, you need to speak with a friendly tone, you need to share a smile, and when somebody tells you thank you, you better say, that's right. So there's four core values, right? And so when I walk into a Chick-fil-A, now that I'm not working there anymore, what I'll do is I'll walk in and I'm giving my order right and maybe they're um, looking down or they're frowning. And worst of all, right, I'm, I'm, I'm walking away. I just paid and I say, thank you. And they might look at me, you're welcome. I just wanna look at them and go, liar! The truth isn't in you. You're misrepresenting Truett and Dan Cathy, right? Who have given these values since 1946 when Chick-fil-A was created. That's what John's trying to say to us. He's trying to say, look, if you're misrepresenting God by saying, I know him. I'm a worker at Chick-fil-A, but you're going, you're welcome. You're a liar. The truth isn't in you. That's what John's trying to say to us. He's not talking about a believer who has this dim light or the faith of the mustard seed that Jesus talks about. That's not who he's speaking about here. He's talking about somebody who we talked about in chapter one and in the first two verses of chapter two, right? Whose conscience is searing, whose heart is hardening, who's in habitual and unrepentant sin. That's who John's trying to speak about here when he's speaking about this person who claims to know God but is not keeping the commandments. Sin in the child of God will meet. They will meet each other. But there's this idea that they aren't going to live in harmony together. They aren't going to cohabitate and live in unity, right? There's going to be friction when sin and the believer meet, right? Something doesn't feel right. There's going to be this discomfort. I don't know. I can't help but think it's like trying to drive a boat in the parking lot. It's not going to work so well. There's that friction. Like, man, this doesn't belong here. Is this legalism that we're speaking of here? oh, you just have to do all the right things, or no. This idea that John is trying to speak of is not legalism. He's contradicting this idea of hypocrisy. He's not saying, if you fail, you don't know God. What he's saying is, if you claim that you don't fail, you don't know God. If you're saying and acting like, oh, I don't fail, I don't sin, that's not me. He's saying, that's who I'm speaking of as a liar. D.A. Carson puts it this way um, in contradiction with this idea of legalism. He says, people will not just drift towards holiness, will slouch toward prayerlessness, will delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slide towards godlessness and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated. What D.A. Carson is trying to say there is he's trying to say, look, when you're sliding towards godlessness, you're not escaping legalism. When you're pursuing a prayerless life and abandoning relationship with God, you're acting liberated, but you're not. 
He's saying freedom is found in connection and proximity to God. And that's what John is trying to get at here when he's speaking of that knowledge of God, knowing him as a father and knowing him as a friend, knowing the person of Jesus, who is that person of truth, the person who is full of grace and truth, and knowing Jesus will transform us. So we covered doing what Jesus says, and we're gonna move to verses five and six, doing what Jesus does. In verse five, John transitions. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So he transitions. He says, but whoever keeps his word, right? Familiar language from verse three and from what we've already been seeing in chapter one. He's saying, whoever keeps his word, He's asking us, he's saying, what are you preserving? What are you treasuring? What are you holding on to? What's in the baby book? What are you like, oh, this is precious, I wanna frame it. Or are you just like, oh, whatever, I don't care about that. He's saying, what are you guarding? What are you holding fast to? He's saying, in this person, truly, the love of God is perfected. And it raises this question for us. Is the love of God incomplete? Is the love of God imperfect? What is John trying to say to us here in verse 5? He's not trying to say that. Um, My wife Nicole is an artist. She likes to paint, so she'll pull out a canvas, right, and she'll start painting, and she's working on something with diligence because she loves this painting, and she cares about it, and she's painting the painting, and if she tells me, hey, Calvin, I'm perfecting a few more things, she's not trying to tell me hey, I'm gonna make the most perfect painting ever. She's not trying to tell me something like this, but she's trying to uh, point to this idea of completion. She's trying to point to this idea of completion and the result of her love and her hard work and her care. When John uses that word here, that the love of God is perfected, he's actually using the same word as in John 20, when Jesus said, it is finished. He's using that same word of the love of God being perfected in us. Now this love of God, according to many theologians and commentators, is he speaking of God's love for us that needs to be perfected? No, actually what uh, many commentators say is that what John is trying to tell us is that our love for God, the believer's love for God, needs to reach this point of maturity and completion. And he says, look, when you are obeying these commandments, these commandments of love, to love God and to love one another, you are fulfilling that. It's coming to completion when you're loving one another. He's saying your love for God has completed its work when you love one another, right? This is what John says just a chapter later in verse 11. He says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It's the common thread throughout 1 John that we know God and that we love God and love one another. This is what we continue to see here. And it's the same message we've heard from the beginning. It's what we saw in Deuteronomy 10. It's what we see throughout the whole Old Testament, and it's what we see in Jesus, and it's what God commands us to today. So in him, the love of God is perfected, and then he transitions. He says, by this, we may know that we're in him. Once again, he wants us to know that we're found in Christ, that we're found in Jesus. He wants us to know that we're in him, 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What does he mean by abiding in him? What he means by abiding here is this idea of remaining, this idea of enduring, of dwelling, of being present, of holding fast. This is what he means by abiding. It's not just, though it includes fixing your eyes on something, and it's not just resting in something, but it's enduring, it's remaining, it's dwelling. I was actually reading a couple of articles and videos this week um, of tornadoes that were taking place across the Midwest. Some of you might have grown up in that atmosphere to where you get this tornado watch or you hear it on the radio, right? And you hear that the tornado's coming and you maybe get calls, right? And then the lights start flickering. What do you do? Are you standing at the windows? Are you running around outside mowing the lawn? No, what you do is you're gonna curl up into the bathtub, right? You're gonna stay in the bathtub until the storm passes. And as I was reading these articles and videos, I was actually reading testimonies of people who remained in the bathtub and the the roof was ripped off of the house. The bathtub was even removed and thrown. But because they stayed and abided in the bathtub, they remained and they were safe and they survived. And that's what John is trying to tell us. He's not just saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, though that's included. He's saying, remain. He's saying, dwell. He's saying, endure. Hold fast. He's saying, don't run around the house and stand by the windows when the tornado's coming. Get in the bathtub. Remain. Bear down. The tornado might come. Hold fast to Jesus. I want to read real quick John 15. It's a very beautiful text where Jesus is speaking to the disciples, right? In that last week, that last week before he is crucified, and he says, Abide in me, and I in you. He says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine. He says, you are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. And he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is what John wants us to see here. We need to abide in Jesus. We need to stay connected to the vine right? A branch apart from the, the vine cannot bear fruit. He says, be connected. And Andrew Murray, he helps expand on this idea in his book, Abide in Christ. He says, the Christian often tries to forget his weakness. But he said, God wants us to remember it. He wants us to feel it deeply. And he says that the Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it but God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it as we abide in Christ. It's not trying to conquer our weakness. It's not trying to just get over that hurdle. He says, you need to remember it and you need to recognize it and rest and rejoice in it because that's what Jesus says, right? He says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He says, when you're weak, I am strong. And that's the good news of abiding in Jesus is that when we abide in him, we'll walk in the same way. And what does John mean by walking, right? I think in this context, he's talking about conducting our lives in such a way. He's talking, um, right, about 
walking and following Jesus. And I can't help but think of this idea when following, of the, two weeks ago we were at the park, right? And there's the playground, and then there's a track, and then there's the field, right? And so I try to sneak away, right? Little Camilo, the year and a half year old, is running up and down the playground, and I start sneaking away to see if he recognizes. And he has his eyes on me, right? And he's looking at me, and he wants to follow me. So he starts running off the playground, and he starts following me down the track. And he's looking up at me, and I'm looking back at him. And then what I do is turn around. You gotta always try to pull a fast one on him, see if you can sneak it by him. And what does he do? He flips around and he follows me. And he starts following me again. And then I actually started running down the track and he started running after me. And this is the idea that John wants to see is that when we abide in him, we'll have our eyes fixed on him and we'll walk with him and we'll follow him. Where he goes, I'll go. He says, when I walk, I'll walk and follow you. When Jesus runs, I want to run. Where Jesus goes, I want to follow him. Our eyes should be fixed on Jesus just like Camilo's, following where he goes, running when he runs. That's what he wants us to see. John cares, right? In chapter one, verse four, he says, I want your joy to be complete. He cares deeply, not just that we know that we know him, but he cares that our joy is full and that our joy is complete in him. And who better to tell us that than John? The one whom Jesus loved, the one who watched Jesus heal, the one who watched him heal lepers, the one who watched Jesus teach, the one who made the lame walk. Man, the one who when Jesus told him, quit your job and follow me, it says he immediately left his net and followed Jesus. So are you the one who says or are you the one who does? Because Jesus, he's not a hypocrite like we are. He doesn't go back and forth on his word. He says, following me is doing what I say and doing what I do. He wants us to live this life, as John Calvin said, right? Transformed by the power of the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, transformed into his image. And how did Jesus walk? He was a friend to sinners. He was the son of suffering. He was compassionate and caring. And this is the good news of the gospel that John is pointing us to when he says that you need to be the light, that God is light and in him is is no darkness at all and you need to imitate him. He's not saying you're the light. He's just saying be the lens that the light shines through. He's saying be the conduit that the electricity flows through. He wants the love of God to flow through us. This is what John is pointing us to. He says, go back to the vine. He says, abide in him and come back to Jesus. And Redemption Gateway, this is the good news of the gospel. That despite our sin and our hypocrisy and despite our disobedience, that we're loved, we're accepted, we're redeemed in Jesus Christ, that he adopts us. And it's one of my favorite parts of the service when we confess the Nicene Creed together because we're admitting that together, right? We're saying, look, I want to look to you, the Almighty, the God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the one who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, the one who was crucified for our sins and rose again and is seated at the right hand of God. His kingdom will have no end. 
Ian Thomas in his book, Christ in Us. If you're feeling discouraged or burdened or weary or worn down, he says, Christ, he gives you all of the overwhelming adequacy of all that he is right now for every step of the way and for every bend in the road. He knows that we're inadequate. He knows that we're weak. And he's asking us to look to him for his strength because he knows when we're weak, he's strong. And when we're inadequate, he's adequate. And this is the invitation that Paul, that John is giving us here in the text. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, I thank you that you are a friend to sinners. I thank you that you know that we're weak, but we can look to you for strength. Help us to come to you in submission to your lordship and kingship and to be transformed. I thank you that we have the gift of knowing you and loving you and help us to walk in that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.